I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me not to the book of John, where we've been for many, many weeks, but to turn one book to the right. It'd be the book after John's gospel, the book of Acts. And we'll be reading here in a moment from Acts chapter 1. And the idea today, along with the theme of missions, we're going to attempt to explain from Scripture a biblical basis for missions. Where do we find missions in the Scriptures? Now, of course, we're going to be looking at a number of places where missions is all over the New Testament. But to ask specific questions like, what is missions and how are we involved in it? So we'll take two specific passages and we'll look at them in order to answer those questions, just barely scratching the surface as to what the Bible has for us in the form of the topic of missions. Well, let me read to you, beginning in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. And we'll read that paragraph, then we'll ask for the Lord's help in our study together. But verse 6, first chapter of the book of Acts, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come, into the, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to read From this passage of Scripture, we understand its inspiration. We've already made mention of that today. Lord, we ask now for your illumination. May it make sense to us. Something that for so many might be very familiar. But anytime we read your word, we ask that you show it to us fresh and anew. Lord, we ask that... That you give us the ability to hand over the jurisdiction of our thinking, even of our heart, and allow you to be that master teacher we know you to be. Lord, may we understand your word and may we obey it. And these things we ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we just read from the book of Acts which follows the book of John. We've spent a lot of time in the book of John. We understand what he is doing by looking at the end of the book where he gave us the purpose. We understood his claims there in the first 18 verses. And here recently we've been looking at the way in which he calls witnesses 
to support his claim that Jesus was the Son of God. And that believing that he is the Son of God, you can have life in his name. Now, if you like the book of John, you're going to love the book of Acts. Because what we see in the book of Acts is how that word of God goes out into the world. And as that word goes out, God brings people in to the church. But I have to be honest with you. If you really, really like the book of John so far, you may not necessarily like the beginning of the book of Acts. Any more than you might not like the new season of the show you really like when you find out at the end of that previous season that your favorite character is no longer going to be part of the series. Or if you like these movies that have sequels. And at the end of the last one, again, you find out the person you like so much is not going to be in the next one. Well, it's not going to be any good then, is it? Well, in this case, it has to be that way. And even though as we pick up in the book of Acts, we've already read what takes place that that changes everything. Jesus leaves. So these men that spent their time with him will no longer look into his eyes. They'll no longer witness him healing people. They won't hear the sound of his voice. They won't be able to watch the reaction to the crowds that are being taught. They won't see the compassion in his eyes. All of that is is no more. What we'll be left with is the record of God's word as witnesses. We know the story. How do we know the story? We were told the story. By who? By those that were told the story. Faithful men who were given the gospel all the way back to the apostles who saw it with their own eyes. As they were there with the Son of God when he was here on this earth. All of that we call missions. That process is known as the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's still going on. And we just read how it all began. So as a record, the scriptures, both John and now Acts picks up where what we read in John finishes off. In fact, they both have to do with what takes place at the end of Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And the paragraph we just read is the theme of the entire book of Acts, setting the stage for the rest of what follows. What we read gives us the basis for the spread of the gospel to the entire world. And again, as God's word goes out, God brings people in to his family, into the church. So let's take these seven verses, and this will serve as an introduction, a lengthy introduction to what we're going to say. When we get to the next passage of Scripture, you might have looked ahead in the bulletin and saw there's two passages, one in Acts and then one in 3 John. Well, working our way toward 3 John, let's make sure we have a handle on these seven verses we just read. Verse 6, so when they had come together, who's that? That's the disciples. And Jesus had appeared to them already, but he has them together at a specific point. They ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What do they mean by that question? Well, Luke begins with the word so, and it's one of his favorite words to piece together the components of his uh, running narrative in the book of Acts. When he hits that word so, 
Uh, it's as if he's gathering our attention again on, on a setting so he can tell us this next phase. So his men asked Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now this is what they've been hoping for. This, this was what all the prophecies as they understood them pointed to. They were looking for the Messiah which they saw as more or less a, a figure of government if not military to free them from the bondage they were under as the authority of Rome. They wanted to set up the kingdom as it was under the days of, of their king David and that they would be in charge. A theocracy as it were. This is what they were looking for. So I think they asked this question enthusiastically. It's perfectly understandable that they would ask this. We know that's not what was going to happen, but it makes sense that they would ask. They'd asked before. Now they've got a chance again. And if you think of it that way, all those hopes had been dashed when their, their, their rabbi, their messiah, died. It's all over. But now he's alive again, and he's back. So maybe now that he's back, it's full speed ahead. Let's ask him if this is it, if this is when it happens. But Jesus actually has something else in mind. We see it immediately in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's not necessarily for you to know. So just to be clear, Jesus' answer to his disciples' question is not a denial of any place for the nation of Israel and God's plans for the future. He's still got big plans for Israel in the future. What he's telling them, what he is saying, is that the specific time is not for you to know. Uh, the timing, the second coming, remains unrevealed. We read that in Matthew 25 and Mark 13. But what we need to know is the Father has fixed by his own authority... And they are not subject to our speculation. As clear as that is in Scripture, there's plenty of people who, from time to time, write a book and speculate as to when it'll come. I think my favorite was the 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988. It's way off, right? That is not for our speculation. It's for our trust. Verse 8, but you will receive power. He's, it's, it's as if he's saying, that's that. Forget this. What is at the forefront? What is important? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. King James puts it, and even though I study and read, Preach out of this ESV. The King James just comes through sometimes. Uh, similar to what we see at the end of Matthew. We have ourselves here a commission. Or the great commission as we refer to it. And it lays an obligation on all Christians. With it comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. Along with the promise of His empowering presence. Uh, this is going to be the gasoline that runs the great commission. The Holy Spirit. Who empowers what? Our making up a gospel best as we see fit to tell whoever we might be able to convince to believe it? No. Witnesses of the plan of salvation. 
as carried out by Jesus in his body when he was here physically on this planet. So what is a witness? Well, this is basic from school. We see it in the courtroom. It's, it's courtroom language. But a witness is someone who has seen something and able to tell it to others, to recount it as fact. That's what a witness is. We see this all through Scripture. Two places where it's quite obvious is the, the beginning of 1 John, which is also written by John, who wrote the Gospel of John. He begins by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest or made known, and we have seen it. And testify, there it is, to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made known to us. John is an eyewitness. Then there's Second Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't make this up. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is an eyewitness account. So the primary reason for the coming of the Holy Spirit is to empower his witnesses. For the proclamation of the gospel. The early church was so effective at this eyewitness accounting. That in Acts 17. Some men who were upset. Put it this way. The men who have turned the world upside down. Have come here also. They've turned the world upside down. By the power of their witness. And it worked too. The secret of Jesus. Is out. Are we in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Fuquay, Varina? That's the end of the earth. <laughs> Along with all the other places that are not Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but into the ends of the earth, the gospel witness has gone by proclamation of successive witnesses to the original story. It cannot be changed. That's how it takes place. You ever thought your way through that? How fortunate are we to have the truth and not be among those who have not yet heard the truth? That's why the commission's still going on. That's why we have an emphasis on missions. They've got to be told. But the secret of Jesus is out. I like the way uh, David Platt put it. Whenever he hears someone talking about those in their town that are not reached yet, he says, that's wrong. Your neighborhood is not an unreached people group. You live there. You're just not telling them. That's the truth of it. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, that's Jesus. He's, he's finished with what he said in verse 8. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I'm not sure, but I would think... There's probably at least another besides me inquiring mind that would like to know how that happened and what it looked like. Very little given to us. He goes up into the clouds. We don't see him anymore. But for those who were there and present that day, they did get a little bit more of an explanation. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven. So while they're still looking, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus, who is taken up from you, will come the same way as you saw him go. So the message that they gave these men 
is at least two points. The Jesus that they had known had now returned to heaven. John told us he came down from heaven. Well, now he'd gone back to heaven. And secondly, the Jesus they had known would return to earth. He's going to be here twice. And the way he's going to do that is the same way he went away, but in reverse. So we'll see him come in the clouds. And we sing songs about that. Uh, Our hearts are encouraged by that. And it provides a rather solid motivation for missions work. Boss man's coming back. Uh, The one who saved our soul will return. Which gives us a specific amount of time. We know not how long or how short for us to be witnesses to those who don't yet know. And then at a certain point, he'll return and that opportunity will not be any longer in the same way. Now, I mentioned looking at the introduction of of Acts as if it were the sequel or the next season of one of your shows or movie that you like. What we've got so far when we close the book on John and open the book into Acts, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, He lived, He taught, He served, He comforted, He healed, He performed signs and wonders. He was mistreated, mocked, slandered, abused, killed, was buried, rose again, and then went back to heaven. That means his work is complete. The sacrifice has been made. Hebrews 10 clears this up for us, puts it very specifically. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. His work on earth is complete. His work on earth was to provide a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. The Father who promised His wrath on anyone who'd ever sinned sent His Son to atone and and stay that wrath by paying for the sins Himself. This all amounts to what we call The sacrifice for all time. That's how the author of Hebrews puts it. Now here's where I want to start pulling some things together. And what a sacrifice that was. And that sacrifice must be the ultimate motive for missions. Any other motive for missions will fall short. We'll come back to that in a minute. But see how this fits. How are we to really understand sacrifice, much less sell sacrifice, promote sacrifice? And after all, that's, that's what missions involves, right? It costs money to send missionaries. It costs family to leave as a going missionary. Unless we supremely value the thing for which the sacrifice was made, there's no other motivation for missions. Does that make sense? As a church family, we will not get excited about missions or missionaries unless we love and value, really deeply value what Christ has done for us in the gospel. 
Either his sacrifice is worthy to make sacrifice so others can know it, or it's not. So there's no amount of pressure or leaning in on you or incentivizing or attaching gimmicks. No church that does not understand the gospel is ever going to understand missions. It just will not work that way. But a church who has never been the same since their understanding of the gospel will never cease to try to tell others about it. That's where the motivation comes from. Our sacrifice is always in response to his sacrifice. Our offering ourselves or our resources is in response to his offering himself. We wouldn't have anything to give if he hadn't have come from heaven, giving up the glories of heaven to become a human like ourselves, to take our place. That's the gospel. So what is missions? I think we can cobble together a definition now. The deliberate gospel mission of the church to make disciples of all nations. It is the sacrificial act of evangelism that takes the gospel message across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, gathering churches and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. It's fulfilling our responsibility as a witness to what Christ has said in his word and what he's done in our lives. So how do we do it? Well, that's where this other passage of Scripture comes in. We could learn a great deal in answer to that question by just reading the rest of the book of Acts and spending a lot of time on Paul's three missionary journeys and what he did and how he did it and and all the details. But there's one passage I think will be of particular interest to us and uh, in in a short way, there's a lot there, is 3 John. And we're going to read over half of that book. But you'll see that it's all on one page. So it's better than reading half of Acts, right? So in this third letter, and uh, you'll have to be very careful as you're turning. You'll go right past it. Told you it wasn't very big. The Apostle John who wrote this, same as the one who wrote the Gospel John, instructs a friend in the ministry about the importance of supporting missionaries. In so doing, he gives us a number of biblical principles to shape the way we think about our own support of missionaries. Now let me read this to you. It won't take but a second. Uh, Verses 1 through 8. The elder, that's John, to the beloved Gaius, his friend, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray... That all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. At least five separate things. They're, they're 
likely more, but five will serve our purpose this morning. From that passage of Scripture, we learn at least, number one, concern for missions and missionaries is a given. On John's part and on this, uh, likely another elder in another church, his friend Gaius, John says that his friend walked in the truth. So we know this man is a dependable uh, partner in uh, the work of missions. As well as it was a faithful thing he did in all his efforts for these brothers. So there's a relationship with these brothers, unnamed as they are. And then further down, John says, we ought to support people like these. So concluding those ideas there, Scripture is clear that a desire to help and support the spread of the gospel to those who have not heard it is normal. It's a healthy part of basic Christianity. Again, if we understand the sacrifice Christ made for us, we should understand the sacrifice that's asked of us to go tell others the same story. Number two, cooperation among the local churches is also a given. These gospel brothers that John is talking about had gone out, they'd been sent out as missionaries from another church, likely John's church in Ephesus. We don't know that because he doesn't say, but it makes sense. It says they were strangers to Gaius. He'd not met them. So it's obvious they weren't from his church. So it seems as you have at least two churches working together to support these. John says that they ought to support them together. So not only do we support missions from our local churches, but we participate with other churches. And together we can do more than divide it. So church cooperation is a given. Number three, choosing the right missionaries to support is critical. That could be a month worth of training in of itself. Who do we support? Who is a good missions candidate? We're very grateful for passages like this where John helps us narrow it down quite a bit. He says these men had been sent out for the sake of the name. Missions at its irreducible minimum is for purposes of proclamation of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ and what he's done for this earth. There will always be a need for churches to train, send out, and financially support intentional missionaries to this specific gospel. goes on to say that they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. And just as Paul, if you notice in the book of Acts, he never received support or income from those he ministered to. And Paul's work was pioneer evangelism, where the gospel had not yet been. So to come and to offer someone an understanding of the gospel that can save your soul, and oh, by the way, uh, I have to eat too, I need your support. It's somewhat of a conflict of, of, of interest. Though it was Paul who uh, laid out for the church uh, how to pay the pastors of local churches where the gospel's already been comp- uh, proclaimed. But he himself didn't do that. So we support missionaries as they do not receive money from the gospel. It's made clear here in this passage. Uh, The church supplied their needs. Missionaries are then not self-styled free agents. 
They're supported by and accountable to specific local churches. This has a whole list of responsibilities that we assume as a church when we send a missionary out. Same as you would support the children that you have in your own home. You say, well, not when I send them out, they should support themselves. Well, this is where that illustration was a bad choice. Sorry about that. Just want to check if you're listening. Every now and then it's good to do that. In verse 6, it says, These men testified to your love before the church. This is interesting too. They'd given a report in their home church as to the support they'd been receiving from another church. They were doing some of what we were doing this morning and will next week and the following weeks this month. Listening to our missionaries report to us as to what the Lord is doing and how we, by our support, are in on what's happening. And then number four, support should be abundant. John helps us out as to how we should take care of our missionaries. Verse 6 says, we should send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. I think it's easy enough to understand, send them on their journey. What do you suppose it means by in a manner worthy of God? I'd say that's about as tall of an order as we could get. Um, Not unlike what Paul tells Titus, referring to Zenos and Apollos, to send them on their way, see that they lack nothing. Whatever they lack is going to get in the way of their work. And we're sending them out for the work, so what sense does it make to send them out shorthanded where the efficiency of their work is because of their lack of support. Our support should aim for the same thing, that our missionaries lack nothing. And I wrote down this next phrase I saw in a book, and I'm glad he had the guts to say it. I might not have. As if we were sending Jesus himself on a journey. Now, there were times where Jesus went from town to town, and we read of of individuals, ladies who supported him so that he could do what his father sent him to this planet he created in order to do. Uh, When we send people out in the name of Jesus, we should support them accordingly. And five, our motivation should be the glory of God, specifically the name and the truth of Christ. That's there in the last few verses of this passage. These churches supported them as fellow workers for the truth. In other words, those whom were sent made personal sacrifice to go. Those churches that were sending them made financial sacrifice to send them. Both were sacrificing because of their understanding of the sacrifice made by Jesus on their behalf. Their motivation was the glory of God to spread the message of God's supreme sacrifice of love to those who have not yet heard it. That's not only missions, but how it's done. At least a snapshot. Now think with me for just a moment. Because sometimes all of this is, is hard to think of in our head in paper. Uh, even linearly as far as we think through the steps. Theologically speaking. But in these stories, both the Gospels and John that we're most familiar with. Being we've spent so much time in it. And then this book of Acts of the Apostles and what happened after Jesus left and they carried the gospel into the world. The dramatic way in which Jesus worked through the lives of these common ordinary men can sometimes 
be just the encouragement that we need. Have you ever noticed the difference between the way the disciples acted in the Gospels as opposed to in the Acts of the Apostles? If, you, if you're familiar with both of the books, you would almost wonder if these are not completely different men. The way that they acted was, was completely... What made the difference from before and after? Well, undoubtedly, it was their comprehension, their understanding of the gospel as it came together. And for so many of them, that didn't take place until after the resurrection. You remember uh, like the men on the way to the, uh, Emmaus and how their hearts burned within them as he explained from the scriptures all the things that had taken place. But probably my favorite would be Peter because Peter's the one we, we so often like to relate to because of the, the uh, transparent way in which the gospels include all of his mistakes, Right? That in one place he's saying something that Jesus says only God could have given to you. And then the next very thing he says, he's saying, that's as if Satan said it behind me. You see him getting out into the water and walking only uh, to sink and then to walk again uh, as the Lord uh, bends the capabilities of molecules in the water to miraculously teach this man something. The worst of it, though, was near the end in the upper room when he promised, I'll die with you. I won't forsake you. And then we read within hours, he forsakes him three times. Uh, emphasized with swear words to make sure that this young girl has no mistake that he has nothing to do with that man Jesus. And then just as Jesus had said, he hears this rooster crow, which dawns on him that he'd done exactly what he said he wouldn't do. Almost exactly the way Paul describes it later, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do want to do. None of it gets done. I'm, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm, I'm dead. Who's going to save me from this? Well, Peter would know that before Paul wrote it. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. And put yourself in his spot. I mean, I, I would think we even went through this when, when he was choosing the disciples. And he changes his name from Simon to Peter, which means rock or foundation or cornerstone. And everybody laughs. You can't build on a guy like Peter. He'll mess you up. He's, 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 he's fun to be with. Very impetuous. You're having a, a good time if he's at the party. But you can't, you can't give him the keys to the kingdom. It's, it's not going to work that way. And it's as if Peter understands all those things. As he realizes, this one man who gave me a shot, I've now ruined my relationship with him. And I can't even fix it because he's dead now. So for three days, he lives with this. Morning of the first day, He's the first one in, not the first one there. John stops at the tomb. He runs on in, again, impetuous. And then there are those times where he appears. We, that's in the first few verses of Acts. 
But my favorite is the situation where all these men who have done a certain thing for three years decide since this has all changed and Jesus was dead, even though he's alive now, we don't really know where he is. He's here for a minute and then he's gone. Peter says, I'm going fishing, which is one of my favorite verses to use out of context, right? Because you can't use it in context because what he's saying is I'm going back to what I used to do because what I have been doing is no longer any good because he's wrong there. But they go fishing. They don't catch much. Then there's this fellow on the shore who shouts, have you caught anything? Anybody who's ever fished knows that that's the most likely thing you're going to be asked, especially when you get to the boat ramp. Uh, I asked it this week, and someone asked me the same thing. I did get a short chance to go fishing. Um, But then he gives some advice. And usually that's the most likely thing to be ignored, right? Every fisherman's got some advice. He says, throw it over on the other side. And they did, and they caught a whole net full. Hard to get it in the boat. Made such an impression on John that he says they caught 153. That's, that's, that's a fisherman there for you. Never forgets the number of fish they caught on the best day of their fishing career. That's when John says to Peter, that's the Lord. And Peter puts his coat on because he was busy fishing and jumps in the water. He can't wait to get to this man and fix this thing they had between them, right? So we find there that there's coals, there's breakfast. They eat, bring some of the fish. I don't know how many were left over after. They started with 153. But then after breakfast, it says... Jesus gets alone with Peter. And he begins to ask, Do you love me? Now remember, their relationship has been splintered. Peter says, Well, you, you know that. Of course I do. Then he asks him again. That must have been a lot more difficult. He says, You know I do. And each time he says, in a slight variation, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked, do you love me? And it says, Peter was upset that he asked him a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart better than I know it. With whatever I've got, it's yours. I love you. So if you're keeping count, three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus works through what's necessary to reaffirm that three times. Peter's forgiven. It's all patched up. As if it never happened. I think Peter, more than the rest of them, knew because Peter had been down to the bottom of the ditch deeper than anybody had. You know, the idea, who loves me more than one I forgive, the big debt or the small debt? If, if any of those 12 knew what it was to be clean, that the sacrificial blood of Jesus had washed all of his sins away, it would be Peter. Now you flip over into Acts, and by the second chapter, he has preached a sermon, and 3,000 people have been saved. What made the difference? He values the sacrifice. 
It's, it's worth everything to him. So he'll risk everything to make sure others have it. Missions only runs on the gasoline of sacrifice. And unless we understand the gospel and what it means, we won't be able to share the gospel with others. That's how this works. And again, to start where we end where we started. If you like John, what Jesus did for the world, and in believing you might have eternal life, you'll love Acts, where these men go tell the world about it. You'll want to go too, or send somebody who will. But if you don't get the book of John, you won't get the book of Acts. It won't make sense. And we can try to do it, but for some reason we'll always look as if it's just off in some way. So let's focus on the gospel and missions will happen. And it'll be a thrill to do so. With that said, let's, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for a Sunday like this to study your word, passages from Acts and from 3 John to help us understand what missions is all about. It's the office of a witness and to understand how we do it by treasuring the gospel and by paying it forward, I suppose, would be a way to say it. Lord, we ask that you embody and empower our our witness, our evangelistic efforts through missions by the power of the Holy Spirit that is a down payment in our lives as you describe it in Scripture. Over the next few weeks, I ask that you'll open our hearts, make them soft when we talk about giving, when we talk about stewardship. Lord, may we actually be as bold as to ask you to help us open our heart wide enough to tell us what it is you want us to do. Support someone or go ourselves. And Lord, may we be trusting enough to allow you to call the shots. Thank you for missions. Thank you that we have the truth and we know what it is to be saved. Bless us as we endeavor to tell others. Thank you for Wake Chapel. And thank you for the gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again this morning for this time together for the privilege just to be back here in your house to worship you and to learn from your word. And Lord, we just thank you for missions and for this special time that we can focus on the importance of sharing the gospel. Lord, the Bible shows us the basis for missions. It's our prayer that the good news about Jesus and the price that he paid for each and every one of us at Calvary continues to go out locally and globally. And Lord, we're thankful for missionaries like the PV family, and the Osma family who joined us during the Sunday school hour. And Lord, these flags here that we display this morning are just a reminder of the impact of the gospel. We pray for continued encouragement and provision as they work to spread the truth of your love and your mercy and your grace. And Father, we lift up our missionaries of the week, Lee and Lana Lowell. We just pray that their work would continue to be blessed as they serve with Transworld Radio to provide programming in so many native languages. And Lord, we just ask you to lead, guide, and direct us as we go our separate ways this morning. 
bring us back safely at the next appointed time. For it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.